Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of these years I want to start a little bit of a Christmas coup where anytime you see a sign or someone says happy holidays to you that you sort of retort back with enthusiasm. Merry Christmas, you know, and make a stink about it. Well, let's uh let's pray and then we're going to we're going to dive into our message this morning. So Father, thank you uh, for the privilege it is to gather together as the family of God because you have drawn us to yourself, because you sent your son, because you made a provision for our need. Through your son Jesus, our sin was canceled, it was killed in him. Father, we're amazed that when you look at us, you don't see our sin. But for those who have trusted in Christ, you see in us the righteousness of your perfect son. We don't deserve it and we know that. And so we gather, we gather together to remember that we're part of your family only by your grace and your mercy and your gift given in Jesus. And we worship you as a redemptive God who before the beginning of the world planned our redemption, even before we existed or even knew it was necessary. You are a God worthy of worship, and that's why we're here. So Lord, as we go into your word again this morning, I pray that you would teach us what we need to learn. Um, We get a chance to see the heart of Jesus as he's talking with the Father. And God, may our heart reflect, reflect his. Even as we've sung a song just now that sounds an awful lot like an Easter song, We know that Easter isn't possible if Christmas hadn't happened, if Christ hadn't come. So thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying in our place. And then leaving and sending your Holy Spirit so that we would be empowered through him. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in John 17 again, and we're continuing our series. I've titled this, Eavesdropping a Priestly Prayer. I don't know if you like eavesdropping. I guess sometimes it can be good until you hear somebody say something negative about you, and then you wish you hadn't eavesdropped. Uh, The penalty for the crime is inherent within it. Um, But here we get a chance to eavesdrop on the prayer of Jesus, talking to the Father uh, about us. And as I've kind of positioned or talked about this and described it, I think it's an incredible privilege. Not just to know that Jesus prayed or even to be given a generic title that he prayed for us, but to hear his prayers for us, to hear his very words, to hear how he articulated uh, his concerns for us to the Father, to hear how he has advocated for us is a privilege. And, um, and we've kind of talked about the, the way you can break up this prayer a little bit. And we've, we've already been through the first two parts, verses uh, 1 through 5. We see Jesus praying largely for himself there. Particularly uh, longing to have his glory restored to him. The glory that he had with the Father uh, before he came to this earth. The glory that he had before creation, in fact. And he's longing for that glory to be restored to him. And then as we moved in the second part of the prayer, verses 6 through 19, we saw Jesus praying specifically for the disciples, and in particular the 11 that were with him. And he's praying for them because as they begin the mission that he has given to them, they're about to encounter some serious persecution uh, that in fact, as we know now, would cost them their very lives. And so as he prayed for them, he prayed that they would be preserved and guarded and protected. 
as they carried out the mission that he had given to them. And in this last section, verses 20 through 26, we, we begin to see Jesus' heart for the church that is to come. He, he looks forward beyond just the disciples who have believed and even the wider group of, sort of not the 11, but the wider group of disciples that have believed. But he looks even beyond that to the group that does not yet believe but will. And he envisions this growing church that has started so small but that continues to grow throughout the world. And he prays for them. Uh, and, and throughout this prayer, a couple of things have really, I think, come through, particularly about the heart of Christ. And I want to just bring them to your attention, and, and hopefully you've recognized them. First of all, one of the things I think we see in Jesus is his love for his followers. And, it, you know, even if it's not explicitly stated, you kind of read between the lines and you can see the incredible compassion and affection that he has for us. That comes through loud and clear. And I think we also see the pleasure that he takes in the redemptive plan of God. Which is amazing when you think about the fact that he knows in order for the redemptive plan of God to be successful and to be accomplished, it will cost him his own life. He knows that. And yet he takes great pleasure in what God is doing uh, in, in redeeming mankind to himself and reconciling mankind to himself. We, we also see in Jesus his eagerness to return to the Father, which I think is, it's been kind of interesting for me to reflect upon that. I'm not sure I've thought deeply about that before. But Jesus enjoys, if I can say this, enjoys his own glory. He's glad to be returning to it. Jesus likes being God. And he likes being with the Father. And he likes being in heaven. And he's looking forward to the day where he's going to go back and have that glory restored to him. And that is a rightful thing. That is a rightful feeling for him to have. And then finally, we see his concern for, again, the future church. He, he, he expects the impact of the gospel to go forward. He expects for people to come to a saving faith in him, for sins to be forgiven, and for mankind to have peace with God through his sacrifice. He expects the church to grow. He expects it to happen. And he prays for them uh, with his expectation of uh, of, their, of his concern for them. So follow along with me. We'll start at verse 20 and, and then we'll keep moving along in this prayer. My prayer is not for them alone, and this is referring again to the 11. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. And I have loved them even as you have loved me. Father I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see the glory. The glory you have given me. Because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father though the world does not know you. I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. All right, I have a short message for you this morning and then, and then I have a long application for us all just to brace yourself for that. So here's the short message. First of all, we see Jesus praying for the church to come. Again, right before his death, the closing prayer of his ministry, you could call it that. Uh, basically, as he's closing his ministry out, he prays for us. 
He prays for you and he prays for me. We're specifically who is on his mind at this point. And not just for you and me, but for those that we might be sharing Christ with. Those that we're praying for. Those that we hope come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. The future church. This is who he is praying for. And we, so we can see his, uh, his heart for this particular, this particular group here. Uh, and I think one of the most humbling things to me when I think about the ministry strategy of Jesus is that he uh, puts, really kind of pinned the hopes of the world in terms of ministry strategy on, on the church. <laughs> that, that's kind of a shocking thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how you feel about that. But it makes me a little uncomfortable and, and when I think that Jesus had the audacity to place that much responsibility on what I would feel like is a pretty feeble church. Uh, I'm amazed even at the time uh, in history when he chose to come. If, if his point was to communicate to the whole world the, the need to be saved, the need to have faith in him and to walk with him, uh, why not come in the information age, you know? When you could send out an email to everybody effortlessly or uh, disseminate information quickly. He came in a low-tech time in an agrarian culture. And he brought, drew some men to himself and developed a relationship with them. And then said, okay, you guys, it's on you. Good luck. And of course, we know that he has equipped us for this task. He has... He has authorized us to be his witnesses. He has given us the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God. So we have resources that are powerful to spread the gospel message and enlarge the church. But sometimes it's just a little bit humbling to realize how much responsibility Christ has given to the church to carry out his plan. One of the things that comes uh, through loud and clear to me through this part is just the passion that we see in Jesus for the lost. Again, he's not content here that, hey, 11 have followed me and there's some other disciples out there. That's great. That's good enough. But he prays specifically for those who are yet to believe, those who are yet to uh, come into the church. And throughout his ministry, we definitely see Jesus' heart for the lost. In fact, I love the way Dr. Luke puts it in his gospel, Luke chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In fact, that was really the nickname of Jesus during his ministry was friend of sinners. And I want to tell you, I am totally envious of that nickname or that reputation. I would love it if when people spoke about Eric Johns, that they would say he is a friend of sinners. I would love that reputation. I would love it. And and I... I want to I sort of qualify that too. I don't ever want to be thought of as someone who is soft on sin or who looks the other way or who is um, tolerant of it or anything like that because calling people away from sin is one of the most gracious things we can do for them. Calling people to repentance and calling people to Christ and away from sin is merciful and kind and loving because sin is destroying our lives. So let me just say that. But I would love to be known as an enemy of sin and a friend of sinners. I would love for that to be my reputation. I hope you feel the same. Jesus was passionate about the lost. He was constantly rebuffing the religious leaders who thought they had everything together and who made it hard for people to come to faith. And he was constantly going to those people 
who were broken and fallen and dirty and messy and did not have their lives in order. And he constantly brought the truth of the gospel to them. Um, There's a quote that I've put in your notes this morning, and uh, I'm not even sure if I agree with it. So I put it there by way of provocation so we could think about it together. William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury, 1942 to 1944, has said this about the church. The church is the only institution that exists for those who are not yet its members. Now, what do you think about that? I ask rhetorically. Uh, I hope that kind of, you know, that you would mull that around in your mind a little bit. I'm not totally sure that I agree with it. On the one hand, I think it's a privilege to be the church. It's a privilege for us to be together as the family of God. To bless one another with the spiritual gifts that he has entrusted to us. It's a privilege to be family, isn't it? And, and I think God means that for us. I don't think it's incidental because we all happen to be saved. He means for us to be the body of Christ. He means for us to be the church and to enjoy it. So I would say the institution exists for us as well. And I would also say the institution, if you could say this, exists for God. Because one of the reasons we gather together is to worship him and to glorify him and honor him. He saved us. That's why we're here on Sundays. You know, not just to sing Christmas carols. We're here to put God as first and foremost, first and foremost in our hearts and minds. We're here to worship and say that there's something and someone bigger in this world than just me. So the church exists, I think, for us. It exists for God. And yes, it absolutely exists. And what, maybe what we need to hear is that it also exists for those who do not yet belong to it. It's not a closed club. It's not exclusive. The church needs to be porous. It needs to be open. There needs to be room for people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We need to have our our hearts and our minds fixed on those who do not yet believe just as Christ did. His closing prayers, his closing ministry is for those who are not yet the church, but who would believe. And so we have, this. I, I think, this very difficult chore as Christians, as the family of God, as the church, to do two things that are at seeming contradiction with one another. Number one, we have to maintain a distinctiveness in this world. We have to be qualitatively different kind of people who renounce sin, who try to live holy lives, who live for the honor and the glory of our King, King Jesus. We live in a loving, humble, sacrificial way for one another and and for the world. So we have this distinctiveness to maintain, to be separate, and to be different. And if I could say different good, not just weird, okay? You haven't been called to be weird. You've been called to be different. Different good, okay? So work on that, you know, for those of you who are weird. Be different. Work for different. Good different. Uh, But at the same time, we're also to maintain some kind of integration with this world. Some kind of engagement with it we're not we're to be in the world but not of the world right we're to be salt and light we're to have an influence in the world that we're a part of but we're not to be we're not to be completely detached from it so that we have no influence so i think these are almost almost an impossible tension to maintain pulled so strongly two different directions pulled wholeheartedly to the lord because of his goodness in our life And so moved and so compassionate and so loving for those who don't yet know him that we would stay engaged even in this messy world so that they might come to know the Savior that we have met. I think we should feel pulled so strongly that our arms are going to like rip out of their sockets. That's the kind of tension I think we're asked to maintain. And Jesus did maintain that kind of passion for the lost. 
We need to have that as well. He also expected some, not just evangelism from the disciples, but he expected effective evangelism. In fact, in verse 20, you can see that as he's praying, he's praying for those who would believe because of their message. He expected that the gospel was going to be on the lips of the disciples. They were sent. They had a mission to achieve, to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And of course, from here, he would give them the Great Commission. He would give them the encouragement in Acts, the first chapter of Acts, where he talks about they're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And clearly there, he's talking about Fairbanks, right? Ends of the earth. Maybe Salcha. I don't know. (laughs) Do you know we have a few folks coming from Salcha? Isn't that cool? Um... But really, I mean, from where Jesus is speaking and he wants the gospel to go out incrementally, the ends of the earth. Could you, I mean, we're that, right? Fairbanks, ends of the earth. It's here. We also see that Jesus desired um, that the new disciples would be incorporated into the family of God. In other words, more than just an array of converts, Jesus envisioned disciples being brought into community, belonging one to another experiencing the oneness of the body of Christ. And I think he does an amazing thing here that's almost hard to accept. He likens the oneness that you and I would enjoy as the body of Christ, as believers belonging one to another. He likens that to the oneness that he and the Father enjoy. And I just, I just confess to you, I really, really don't get that. Except to say that the bar is set pretty high and we have a long ways to go. But that seems to be what he's after here. The privilege of of being part of the family of God is an incredible blessing. And, And I would say this. I think that the unity within the body of Christ is critical to our message. Maybe more so now in our culture than ever before. In fact, I think it is the unity within the body of Christ, the oneness that we enjoy that makes our message credible, authentic, acceptable. Um, I I think in our evangelism, as we're trying to share Christ with people, we not only need to give them the content of the gospel, which is that they need to repent from sin. They need to turn to saving faith in Jesus, who is the only appropriate sacrifice for sin. That they can experience the forgiveness of God and be restored to him and have the hope of eternal life with him. That's the gospel. That's the contents of the gospel. But I want to say this. I think we also need to provide people the context of the gospel. And I believe that's the church, the body of Christ, and the unity and the oneness that we enjoy. In other words, I think people don't just need information, but they need to see it lived out. They need to see it fleshed out. And as we share with them not only the words, but we show them the life of what it means to be reconciled to God and to one another, they will see the gospel in living color as they see it lived out in the community of faith. Christian community is one of the critical tools for evangelism. Uh, I love the words of Francis Schaeffer. I think he was right on when he called the observable love of one Christian for another the final apologetic of the gospel, the final evidence, the ultimate evidence of the gospel. 
He says it this way, Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. By this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Um, Leslie Newbigin, who is a missionary to India described the local congregation as the hermeneutic of the gospel. It's the way in which we understand it. You might say it's the living illustration of. We're the picture of what the gospel is trying to accomplish. And so I think more and more what people need is not just a singular witness. And I hope you are that. I hope you're a witness in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and in your family. I hope you're giving people the gospel message and that content. But more than just that singular witness, I think what they really need to see is the body of Christ loving one another. In other words, if I were to give you a better strategy or tell you how you might improve your strategy of sharing Christ with people, connect those that you're trying to lead to Christ with your network of Christian friends as quickly as you can. Let Let them see you love one another and care for one another. Let them get a collective witness for Christ. Let them see the church. Let them see the beauty of what God is restoring in us. Um, I think in that sense what we see here and what we're confronted with is that the glory of God is seen in the oneness of the church. And I would also say this, as much as that is true in the positive case, it is, it is that much more true in the negative case. When the church is unified and one, and getting along and loving each other. That oneness and that oneness is there on display. It is an incredible witness for the goodness and the glory of God. When the church is fighting and splitting and relationships are broken and forgiveness is not coming forward and grudges are held and people are vindictive and we're backbiting and we're hateful and we're separating. There is no greater offense to the gospel. There is no greater obstacle to those believing our message when they see that. So we have the opportunity as the church to put on display the glory of God as we show the oneness that we can have and the unity that we can have because of his grace in our lives. That's the end of this particular prayer and that's really the end of the message that I wanted to deliver to you from this. But I want to bridge off of that and talk about how I think it impacts us as a church today. I want you to see two things. First of all, I want you to see the expectation that Jesus had that the church would continue to expand, that the gospel would go forward, and that new people would need to be brought into the community of faith. Secondly, I want you to see his love and his prayer, praying for those who would yet be the church. I want you to see those two aspects of Jesus' heart because I think we're going to need them going forward. And that is my challenge to you, Bethel Church. Uh, many, as many of you know, we have, uh, we have talked to you about our expansion project uh, that we have been, uh, boy, long in the works. And uh, many of you have kind of come along and said, hey, we keep hearing about the project. We keep hearing that uh, you're saving money for it. You, we keep hearing that it, we're going to uh, be getting this thing up and going one day. Uh, and we're ready. Can you just tell us when and where we can give? And let's get going. We've heard enough. Now it's time to act. And, um, well, I have the privilege of telling you today's sort of the day. The capital campaign is now underway. And I want, before I get to some of the details of that, I want to just get a little bit of a running start on it and to, 
and to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is this church and how God is using it. Uh, Hopefully you know the mission, you all know the mission statement of the church because I know you talk about it when you see each other at Fred's during the week. It's on your lips all the time. The mission of Bethel Church is leading people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We believe that to be in obedience with the Great Commission, with the Acts Commission, and with other passages such as we saw this morning, God's heart for the yet-to-be church. This is the errand that we're on, leading people to a growing relationship with Jesus. The way we envision that here at the church, we envision a caring community that equips the whole family to follow Jesus. That's how we're going about it. That's how we're strategizing together in this time and in this place. And these are not just, you know, statements that we've plucked out of thin air and written down and we kind of hope they happen. I would say, in fact, these are an unfolding reality. This is happening by God's grace. And I'm really excited about that. Um, but, But right along with that, one of the challenges we're frequently finding is the shortcomings of our facility. Uh, you, you kind of look around and see it's a little crowded in here. And it's, I don't know, what is it, 85 degrees in here right now? We could uh, take some wagers on that. Uh, but, but more than just the comfort factor, what concerns me as a church is that either in our hearts or in reality that we would declare ourselves full and without room. And I think that's wrong. And so that has created in me what I hope is a holy discontent. We cannot as a church fold our arms and say, we're done, we're comfortable, we're full, good luck to the rest of you, go on with your life. I think that would be wrong and I think that would be disobedient. My hope and my prayer is that we as a church would have the same heart that we saw demonstrated in Jesus and that is that we would continue to look for and pray for those who are not yet the church those who need this place and need this message and need this community of faith that we could fold them into our lives and into the life of God. So some of the distinctives about our church, we've been privileged to be in this community for 50 years, over 50 years with a good reputation. And I'm proud of that. Uh, You guys know we're far from perfect. Uh, Oftentimes we're downright clumsy and we could put a whole list of of, uh, clumsy moments in Bethel's history. Uh, And they're still happening all the time. Uh, But by God's grace, we seem to be having a significant impact in a lot of people's lives. Uh, I want to talk about some of our distinctives. You guys know these. I hope they'll sound familiar to you. But we have a longstanding reputation in the community for being a Bible-teaching church. I think if you were to ask people, hey, tell me about Bethel. What's it like? I think one of the first things you would hear is that church teaches the Bible. Whether they're in children's Sunday school or Sunday morning or upstairs, that church teaches the Bible. Secondly, I think we're known as a family church. And, and by that, I don't just mean that we have a lot of kids, but we do have a lot of kids. Um, in fact, in the last five years, participation in children's Sunday school in Awana has nearly doubled. The average attendance for children's Sunday school right now is over 120, and for Awana, 130. Uh, in addition, if you combine all of our Sunday school attendance for high school and, and down, down to the nursery, there's over 200 people. That's twice the size of the average church in America. Um, but again, more than just kids, I think what, one of the things when we say that we're a family church, one of the things that Bethel enjoys is a family feel. And I, and I think you guys know that. 
In fact, when Amy and I candidated here many years ago, when we got on the plane and we're headed home, we kind of said to another, one another, we want to go there because those people relate to each other like family. And that is a real privilege of being here is, is, is whether, it's, whether you're young, whether you're old, single, married, you've got five kids, or you're empty nesters. There are family-like relationships uh, that are here. We also have a strong reputation for being a missions church. Uh, did you know 17% of the annual budget is committed to missions? We currently support 13 foreign missionaries and 15 domestic, either missionaries or local ministries. We're also home to what's called Meet the Needy. Uh, it's a child sponsorship program sponsoring kids in Ethiopia. And uh, 80% of those sponsors actually come from Bethel Church. That's in addition to the financial commitment that we've already made to missions. In fact, in the last 14 years, ne- nearly a million dollars has gone over to Ethiopia to support that ministry from this church. Isn't that amazing? We've also sent n- numerous short-term mission teams to Ethiopia, Mexico, Czech Republic, Uh, Spain. Uh, We have several of our own homegrown missionaries on the field. And uh, in addition to that, I think we also have a growing reputation for being an equipping church. Again, whether it's Sunday morning in in worship or Sunday school, we also have an annual conference called the um, Christian Thought Forum, which is kind of an apologetics conference. We have lots of other practical training opportunities, such as the art of marriage, financial peace, and these kinds of things. So we're equipping people on what it means to be followers of Christ. We also have a dynamic youth ministry, and you know Daniel Schubert and Pastor Mark are not here right now. They're downstairs doing that, and so I can speak really well of them without fear of swelling their heads. You know, But it's not uncommon for many of you to come here after your kids came here. Some of your kids came first, and some of you followed because of the dynamic ministry those guys are having downstairs. We're a growing church, growing numerically, which I'm thrilled about. In 2010, our average attendance was 422. In 2014, the average attendance is 613 and growing. We've experienced a growth rate of 45% in four years. 10%, over 10% in four consecutive years. I just want to say praise God for that. That is amazing to me. Um, We actually have more people here on Sunday morning than we have seats for in the auditorium. I don't know if you realize that. We only have 290 seats in the auditorium. Three times now we've crested 700 people. And these are good things. These are wonderful things. But it also creates some problems for us, as you guys know. We also seem to be an inviting church. Easter draws nearly 1,000 people. My favorite service of the year. Anybody else? Favorite service of the year? Not just because it's Easter, but one of the great privileges is to see the whole church together at one time in one place. And not only that, but to see the people that we reach and to celebrate the Lord's resurrection together like that is just splendid. Probably a close second for me is our Easter service or Easter Eve. Easter Eve. Thank you. Christmas Eve, (laughs) Easter Eve. We're not starting a new Easter Eve service, let me tell you. That's not going to happen. Christmas Eve service uh, usually draws more than 700 people. In fact, this year we've had to go to three services. Did you notice that? Three services for Christmas Eve this year. And and that's exciting. Um, We also seem to have a growing collegiate impact. 
And, and, and that's exciting to me. In fact, we have over 30 students, college students, meeting in our home in our not-so-small, small group, as we call it now. And, um, and I think there's a lot more potential there, too. And so that's growing. And then finally, I'd say we're a financially cautious church. Bethel maintains no debt. We have no debt. And we've rarely had any. And if we did, we retired it quickly by God's grace. So what I see as unique about Bethel Church is I think this is a place where families are coming because the whole family can be fed spiritually and grow in their walk with the Lord. That's our identity as a church. It's a unique niche we have in the community. And I think there are several excellent churches in Fairbanks, but there are a few churches that have the same ability to minister to the whole family and share that ministry load over a large number of leaders and at the same time support a large number of missionaries and local ministries. And that's unique. That's our identity. And so if it doesn't show on my face or my countenance, I just want you guys to know I am so proud of Bethel Church and how gracious God has been to us. It is absolutely a privilege to serve alongside you guys here. But I want to challenge us with something. One of the great risks, one of the things that we're in jeopardy of as a church is being comfortable and being complacent. Fairbanks is still a mission field. And I believe it needs, to, it needs Bethel Church to have a greater impact. Let me give you kind of the climate of Fairbanks and the spiritual climate just a little bit. A lot of people in Fairbanks, they're like you. They're transplants from somewhere else. You know, if you talk to people, almost nobody is from Fairbanks, right? We're all from somewhere else, or many of us are. Uh, and a lot of those people, like you, are they're looking for a place of meaningful community, a place that they can belong. Uh, and additionally, Fairbanks is a young town. Uh, brace yourself for these statistics here. Uh, the average age, or the median age in Fairbanks, 28.6. The median age nationally is 37.2. So we're almost 10 years younger than the rest of the world. So how's that feel? That's all right, huh? You're feeling spry today. Um, this is a young town where people, the young and ambitious, are getting started in the workforce, are getting started in family, and started in marriage. And I believe Bethel Church is uniquely poised to help these young people get started right. And I'm excited about that. Some of the spiritual statistics of the town. 27% of people in Fairbanks identify as unaffiliated, having no affiliation with the church or with religion in general. Compare that with a national statistic of 16%. In other words, Fairbanks is filled with undecideds, and I think we need to help them decide for Christ and to decide for a healthy church experience. Only 22% of people in Fairbanks attend church once a week. 22% of people in Fairbanks attend church once a week. The national average is 39%. 47% of people say that they never or seldom attend church compared to the national average of 27%. Bethel, Fairbanks is still a mission field. And it needs us to have an impact, a greater impact. And one of the things that we see is by God's grace, we are having an impact. And I do not want to close the doors and say we're full. And for the first time, that fear is sort of becoming a bit of a reality. We've had to close the Awana registration. We can't take any more Awana kids. We've had to send them other places if there were those. Um, we use the foyer frequently for overflow seating. And there are all kinds of other things that we're running into with space problems. 
And so again, I come back to this point. I believe God wants us to have a bigger impact. And I think that means we need to have the courage to trust him to expand our facility so that we can keep doing what God has allowed us to do. So the expansion project that we've proposed, and you guys have heard all about this by now, uh, we envisioned a, uh, an expansion going out that direction that would add 17,000 square feet of additional space. That's upstairs and downstairs, uh, auditorium space so that we can have a larger gathering for worship, and then downstairs uh, uh, for a, a centralized Christian education arena. Um, we also envision, I think you'll like this, and there's a whole lot of things here. I won't bore you with all of it. It's just getting long. But I will say this. One of the things we're putting in there is an HVAC system so we can handle the air temperature. Uh, can I get an amen on that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we could advertise ourselves as the warmest church in town. I just, I haven't tested all the other churches, but I think it's possible. Uh, other things, we're adding parking, 300, 300 parking spots, connecting the upper and the lower lot so people can move from one place to the next. Uh, this expansion project, as we envision it, will increase our capacity by 50%. And that's our heart. That's our goal. Um, I believe that we need to expand our facility so that we can be a better version of who we are and so that we can continue to have the heart of Jesus, which is to think of and pray for and welcome those who are not yet the church. And when they come here and find no seats and no room, I think we're sending the wrong message. We don't want to tell people, we don't want to tell God, stop sending us people, we're full. And I want, if I was sitting where you are right now and I was um, about to be challenged uh, to make a financial commitment to the church over the next three years for this expensive expansion project, uh, one of the things that I would want to know if I was sitting in your seat is this. Eric, are you in? Are you committed to this? Are you committed to this financially? Are you just standing there talking at us and hoping that we give? And I want you to know that I am committed to this financially. Uh, Amy and I have talked about this. And uh, here's what I feel liber- the liberty to tell you. Above and beyond our normal giving to Bethel Church, we are planning to give generously and sacrificially, and over the next three years regularly, because we believe in this project. And we believe that is the way God is leading our church. And what I want you to know is, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We've also chosen an amount of money to give that, to be honest with you, is not easy for us. It's hard and it's uncomfortable. And we're going to make sacrifices and we're going to adjust the way that we live and this amount that we've chosen is beyond our comfort zone for two reasons. One, we want to be leading by example. And two, we want to have an opportunity to trust God. And I would just tell you, we've already seen God's provision. That's what I feel comfortable sharing with you right now, but I want you to know we're in. Um, you have something in your bulletin. I want to let you know about two things. First of all, in your bulletin, there's a commitment card. Uh, We're not asking for this today. What we want to do is give you some time. Please take this home. Pray over this. Think about it. It'll guide you through what we're asking of you. And we're going to have what we're calling Commitment Sunday, February 8th. We're after a time seeking the Lord and praying about this and seeing how he would lead you. We want you to come back and make your commitment to this project. And then we'll tally those together to see where we are. Uh, So I want you to do that. I also want you to know that this project is being done and is absolutely being bathed and saturated in prayer. 
So one of the other things that you'll find is out in the foyer, there is a prayer calendar that we're going to go through as a church. 37 days of prayer. There's a, a daily devotional that can be emailed out to you or that you can access on the church website. Uh, there's going to be four times of corporate prayer gatherings here at the church. We're going to incorporate a, a weekly prayer beginning in January as a church where we will corporately engage in prayer over this project and what God is doing here. And so these are some of the things we're going to do. There's even prayer bands, these little blue bands that you can put on your wrist if that will help remind you of, to pray or to, to tell others about what you're praying about. Um, so, so those are two things that I need you to do. I want you to take this commitment card home and talk about it as a family and pray over how God would lead you to contribute to this project and then be obedient and follow his lead and definitely engage in the process of prayer through the opportunities that are being made available to you. My heart for this church is especially that as we see the heart of Jesus at the end of his ministry, he was looking forward not content with just 11 disciples and a few around them. He was praying for and looking at those that were not yet the church. He wanted to see them come to Christ and to learn about what it meant to be followers of his, incorporated and integrated into the church. I want that to be our heart as well. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for what you're doing in Bethel Church in spite of us and in spite of our clumsiness and our shortcomings and all the rest. We see that you are at work, not just bringing people through the doors, but bringing people to faith and to maturity as disciples. We're seeing people grow. Thank you for the privilege of being part of a growing church, not just numerically, but spiritually. And God, I pray that you would unify our hearts and minds, that we would be one even as as you and the Son are one. I pray that you would unify us along this, this course of action, God, that we would expand our facilities, not because we want to be a big church, but because we want to have an increased impact for the kingdom of God in this community. We ask for your help. We know that this is not possible in and of ourselves, except that you would do this and lead us and provide what we need. So we humbly come to you, and we want to say, Lord, we're willing. Help us be successful. Thank you for the heart of Jesus that we see in this prayer. May we possess his heart for those who do not yet belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.